0: Good morning. So good to see you all this morning. So, apparently, uh, Abilene Christian is playing in some basketball tournament and they happen to beat a small school out of Austin. Did you hear about that? Um, I think it just goes to prove that God cares about basketball, right? I mean, certainly, He's going to root for the Christians, right? Got some good friends here this morning, Dan and Jill Amundsen, my dear friends from Cassville, Missouri. And uh, they're going to understand what I'm about to say. When we were living in Cassville, the main restaurant in town was McDonald's, right? I mean, it had this big indoor playground. The kids loved to go to McDonald's, and my kids were really small at the time. And, you know, the, the food was probably subpar, but my kids would pick it over any rib joint or steakhouse or barbecue place any day of the week because they knew that they could go in and get a Happy Meal with a toy, and then they could go play on the playground. And I knew their desire and their motivation, and so every so often I would cater to it, and I would take them to McDonald's so that they could get their Happy Meal, their toy, and go play on the playground. You know that Ronald McDonald's a smart clown. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to entice the kids to come in. And unfortunately, I think sometimes that the gospel is presented the same way. Obey the gospel, get a prize, and a playground experience. As if God is some divine genie that is there to just hand down whatever our wish may be. Sadly, all too often, we think the goal is to just be happy. And certainly God wants me to be happy, right? And I think therein really lies the problem. Anybody know what this is? You ever heard of this new phrase that's kind of a catchphrase or buzz phrase in our culture now? Moralistic therapeutic deism. That's a, that's a mouthful. And so we'll just reduce it down to MTD like our culture tends to do as well. MTD is the label given to those who want to make themselves the center of their religion or their spirituality. In other words, at the core of it all, you take center stage. God is like AAA. You break down on the side of the road, he's there to get you up and running again. Otherwise, he stays pretty uninvolved in your life. So you are the centerpiece, and it all revolves around you. God is the cosmic genie that is there to answer your every wish, to affirm who you are and the choices you make, good or bad. And good is really loosely defined. It's all about being happy and happiness is loosely defined. In fact, some of the things that scripture calls bad, an MTD'er would say, it's actually not so bad. And obviously, it's a very unbiblical framework to believe this way because we all know that God is not some divine bellhop and that humanity's happiness is not the tagline of the story. Goodness, no matter how narrowly or loosely defined, is not the standard. You know, this this is probably painfully obvious to all of you, and I know I say it a lot, so I apologize up front, but I think it bears repeating. It's not about you. It's not about you. God, Jesus, the story, the rescuer, the gospel, it's all about who? Who? It's all about Christ. He is the centerpiece. It's not about you. However, all that's been done has been done for you. So while you don't take center stage, God does, what God has done is certainly for you. We've said it before. The Bible is a book about God. It's an autobiography. It's a story about God written by God. And we can't lose sight of that when we talk about spirituality and Christianity and all the things involved with that. Regeneration is what we're looking at this morning in our series, looking at the different re-words that we see in the Bible. We're talking about our new identity that is found in Christ, who we are in Jesus. And regeneration is one of those theological words that when you hear it, you want to kind of slump back in the pew and get ready for a good nap. So I understand I have my work cut out for me this morning in describing and defining regeneration. However, while regeneration may be a subject better acquainted with a master's in divinity program at a college or a university, I do think that it is important, it is vital in fact for us to understand this word and its concept and how it applies to us as Christian And, and, and it all goes back. It all goes back to Genesis chapter 3, to the very beginning, to the fall of humanity. So, you know that in Genesis, things started out as good. God creates Adam, He places him in the garden. He creates Eve because it was not good for man to be alone. And they are living a utopic existence. They are in paradise, and everything has perfect peace and harmony. There's not just perfect peace and harmony between God and and man and, 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 and all those things. There's also perfect rhythm with creation itself, animals, everything in the universe. It's all in rhythm. Then, of course, the serpent comes along, entices Eve and then Adam to eat from the wrong menu. And everything goes off the rails from that point. So Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. And that one event, that one event, the fall of humanity in Genesis 3, sets the stage for everything that follows in the rest of Scripture. The first book of the Bible sets the stage for regeneration. So the story shifts from Adam and Eve to the nation of Israel. However, the narrative is repeated. The descendants of Abraham are rescued from Egyptian slavery and they are brought back to paradise. Only this time it's not Eden, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. But true to their nature, Israel follows in the footsteps of their parents, right? They do as Adam and Eve did and they do exactly what God expressly forbid them to do. As a result, they're booted out of the land. The Old Testament story ends with God's people finding themselves in exile because of their rampant disobedience, mainly their worship of idols. But God still has a plan. A remnant returns to a form of paradise. They return to Jerusalem, the holy city, but the exile has not ended. Peace and harmony are still absent. The people lived in the land, but the land wasn't Eden, and it wasn't a land flowing with milk and honey. The curse was still in effect and the land was still in ruins. And within this narrative, we find another thread, the thread of kingdom. It was Jesus' favorite subject to teach on. Very early on, Israel expressed their desire to have an earthly king. They wanted to be like the nations around them. They had the best king. They had the best king anyone could ever ask for. But they did not want to live under the rule and reign of God. They wanted an earthly king. And so God reluctantly gives them what they want. And what the people find is when you're ruled by man, you're going to get corruption, immorality, and injustice, and oppression. So long story short, Israel blew it. They were afforded the glorious opportunity to live under the rule and reign of God, guaranteeing them peace and harmony, but they forfeited that, and as a result, their story ends the way it began. The people of God are once again slaves in a foreign land, and even though there were Jews living in Jerusalem, they were not in the kingdom of God. They were getting what they asked for, an earthly kingdom with an earthly king who could not care less about their welfare. But God was not done. If we know anything about God, we know that he can be taken at his word. We know that God has a plan and God is going to carry out that plan. He is going to see it through and he promised to lift the curse. He had promised to give his people the land. He promised to multiply the nation like the stars of the sky and he promised to bless them through the seed of Abraham. A generation of people were coming and God would renew his covenant with them. He would make atonement for their sins. He would fulfill the promises that he had made and this new generation would be heirs according to promise. That's the story. That is the narrative that feeds our future. And the central figure in it all is who? Jesus. Right, good job. Pat yourself on the back. Give yourself a gold star. Jesus is the central figure in all. Not you, Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all things promised. He is the king, the priest, the sacrifice, the mediator, the hope that God's people so desperately needed. And you have to understand the Old Testament and the setting of the stage to get there and to understand where we are now. You see, Jesus didn't come to alter the story. He came to fulfill it. The seed of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God is the fulfillment of all hope. And that's what the story is all about. You know, you often hear people say, well, the Bible is our manual for how to get to heaven. Right? The B-I-B-L-E. Basic instructions before leaving earth. Tell me where you find that theme anywhere in the Old Testament, especially in the first five books. Because the story does not start that way. There's nothing in the first five books especially that you see, oh yeah, this is how I get to heaven. That doesn't seem to be the theme. That doesn't seem to be the narrative or the story, right? The story doesn't start by telling one how to get to heaven. Nothing in the Old Testament books gives the impression that going to heaven is the major theme. The Old Testament sets the stage and it gives us the insight into God's character, who he is, his plan, the future for his people, people like you and me. You know, I am thankful that I have a doctor who cares about my well-being. I'm thankful that I have a doctor who is also a dear friend. And my doctor, when I go and see him and I have an ailment, will do his best to not just treat the symptoms, but to find out what's causing those symptoms. He wants to get to the root of the issue. And so he'll prescribe some medicine perhaps. If that doesn't take care of it, he might run some some tests, may do a CT scan, may send me to a specialist. I'm thankful I have a specialist that loves me and takes care of me as well. If a doctor only treated the symptoms that's all he did he wouldn't be worth his salt, and eventually might even be sued for medical malpractice, right? It's not just about making you feel better. It's about addressing the issue that's making you feel bad. And as a preacher, my work is similar. It's not just about me addressing the symptoms. It's about getting to the heart or the core of the problem and exposing the need for a treatment. As a minister, I have to do that. I have to show the good news and what that means for all of us. Sadly, there are many who hear some good news that makes them feel better. God just wants them to be happy or whatever. But the truly good news of Scripture is bad news before it's good news, isn't it? I mean, you have to confront your sin. You have to confront your need. And then once you've done that, the best news is that there is hope that you can be forgiven, that as long as you can draw breath, as long as your heart is pumping, you have hope. It's not just news that makes me happy. It's not just treating symptoms. It's getting to the heart or the core of the issue, which is my sin problem. And I guess now would be a good time to highlight the definition of what we're talking about. We hear that word regeneration. What does it actually mean? How do we really define this? Well, in short, it's transformation. The Greek word found in Matthew 19, 28, as well as Titus chapter 3, verse 5, literally means new birth. And Paul describes it beautifully in Colossians 1. Listen to what he says. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, regeneration begins with rescue. Before we can be transformed, we have to be transferred. There is a transfer of allegiance that happens. You were once under the rule and reign of sin, now you're under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. The interesting thing about it is, even though you enslave yourself to Christ, you have more freedom than you could have ever imagined. There is no freedom under the yoke of sin. So, verses 21 and following. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister." Now, this is us, right? We were alienated. We were cut off. We were estranged from the presence of God. We stood outside the walls of the kingdom, but with rescue comes reconciliation, and with reconciliation comes regeneration. Who we are reconciled to is who we are becoming. We got that much? So notice the verses sandwiched in between these we just read. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. What's the end goal? What is the end goal to the regeneration process? Well, it's very simple. It's to look like Jesus. Not only that, but to the image bearer, we are to be image bearers in the world around us. The Creator created us, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, to be icons, image bearers. In the world around us. Do you see how this is a continuation of the Old Testament story? That we keep the story going. We pick it up and we run with it. The Old Testament is paradise lost. The New Testament is paradise found. What was lost in Adam is found in Christ. Jesus is the reconciliation of all things. He restores peace and harmony. He keeps everything back in rhythm. He lifts the curse. You know what Jesus is? He is the exile ender. That is who he is. He lifts the exile for all of us. Like our ancestors, we too are exiles. We are citizens of the kingdom living in a foreign land. Peter says as much when he refers to us as aliens and strangers. Your version may use pilgrims or sojourners. He also refers to Christians as exiles of the dispersion. That is a phrase that was used of the Israelite people who had been scattered throughout various places after Assyrian and Babylonian forces had captured and exiled them. And so according to Peter... All Christians are part of this dispersion. We are all exiles, and we are all waiting to leave the land of exile and to be gathered to receive an inheritance. And it's important to understand that exiles, at least in Peter's mind, wasn't just about where you lived. It was also about the state you were living in. Just as Jeremiah told the exiles to get comfortable, Peter uses similar language when he states this. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter is giving instruction on how exiles are to live in the land. No, we're not enslaved. No, we're not being held captive. However, the instruction Peter is giving is the same instruction that Jeremiah gave to the exiles when he told them to basically get comfortable. You're going to be there a while. But while you're there, do what you can to change the environment around you. By being like Jesus, Peter says, try to change the environment around you while you wait. For Jesus to come back, while you're waiting, seek to make a difference. Find yourselves dwelling in a kingdom that does not share your views. Find yourself in a kingdom that is running alongside another kingdom, right? You have two kingdoms that we are involved in. One is juxtaposed to the other. We are in the kingdom of God. A kingdom that has come, is here, and is still yet to be fully realized. Yet we're living in this kingdom. The parable of the wheat and the tares gives you some idea about that. These two kingdoms grow along together. They, they run along together for a time. So how do we operate? How do we live and function in a kingdom that doesn't share our values and, uh, and our morals and things of that nature? And Peter says, be Jesus. Be Jesus until Jesus comes. Submit yourself to every human institution. Do right. Honor all the people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. This is how exiles are to act. Now understand, Peter is speaking to persecuted Christians and his exhortation is to be Jesus. As you wait, pursue something bigger. Invest in something greater. Make a difference in this earthly kingdom while you're here until the exile has been lifted. In other words, don't get caught up in acting and reacting like the world because you're not truly a citizen of this kingdom anyway. Living as exiles means living as regenerate people. And regenerate people are heart transplant recipients. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Who knows what this is? It's a TARDIS. You know what a TARDIS is? Man, you guys are dead this morning. You know what a TARDIS is? Do you know what doctor made the TARDIS famous? Yeah, Doctor Who, right? It's because of the TARDIS that we've had 13 official different Dr. Whos, right? Let me explain it to you in terms of Dr. Who. The TARDIS allows the Time Lords to undergo a transformation into a new physical form and somewhat different personality after instances which would normally result in death. Got all that? It's all fiction, by the way. least I think it is. I've never been in a TARDIS, so I guess it could be real. But if you're thinking of the baptistry as a TARDIS, you're thinking about the change that happens. You're thinking about the fact that when you rise from those waters of baptism, you're a new creature in Christ. You're changed. You're different. You're regenerate. The Bible paints a very vivid picture of what regeneration means for us. Paul speaks of regeneration as washing one clean. He also makes reference to regeneration in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, when he talks about regenerate people being new creatures in Christ. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And it was Jesus who spoke to Nicodemus about his need to be regenerate when he said, unless you're born of the water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. But here's the deal. What has to be understood is that regeneration is not a one-shot deal. This is not a one-time thing that happens at baptism. Certainly, baptism is a huge part of this. That's the start line, but it's not the finish line. That's not the goal. This is an ongoing process. Regeneration is a lifelong pursuit. It's a birthmark. When you are immersed In the waters of baptism for the remission of your sins, you buried that old sinful self and you rose a new creature in Christ. You received the Holy Spirit and this tremendous gift is your birthmark. It's your seal. He, the Holy Spirit, is your helper, your comforter, your counselor, assisting you as you navigate this life of discipleship. But I want you to think of regeneration this morning in terms of a heart transplant. Because that's essentially what it is. The first successful heart transplant surgery happened some 40 years ago. But really it happened more than 2,000 years ago in a spiritual sense. We all need a heart transplant. And in order for there to be a heart transplant, whether physical or spiritual, there has to be three things, right? You have to have these three things. You have to have a diagnosis. You have to have a doctor and you have to have a donor. Ezekiel talks about the diagnosis. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I really wish we had enough time to dig deep into what's going on around Ezekiel's words here. But suffice it to say that God sees his people acting like degenerates, not regenerate, degenerate people. He's saying you have a heart of stone. And if you truly had a heart of stone, you'd be dead, right? And that's what he's saying. You're dead. You're not pumping that that life-saving blood throughout your body, your innermost being. God's promise comes in the form of a new heart, and the biblical diagnosis is... That the people's hearts were made of stone, which is obviously a very serious problem. In God's eyes, the people's hearts were just a lump of rock. They weren't doing their job. They weren't taking God's life-giving essence and pumping it through their innermost being. If their hearts were literally made of stone, they'd be dead. And that's what he's saying. You are dead. You need a heart transplant. So, that's the diagnosis. The diagnosis is a heart of stone. The only remedy is a transplant. But you can't perform heart transplant surgery on yourself. You got to have a doctor. And notice what it says in verses 24 through 27. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Understand that Israel is at a very low point here. They have been beaten up, they have been beaten down, they have been deserted, and it's all their fault. Completely their fault. They deserve every bit of it. But in the midst of punishment, we see a promise. It's a promise of restoration, but more importantly, it's a promise of regeneration. God is going to give a new heart and a new start to his people. And with new hearts, God will begin a new life with them as well. There is no way they could do this by themselves. They were completely incapable of performing this surgery on themselves. A new heart was necessary, but they had to have a doctor. And they had to have a donor. See where we're going with this? When a medical heart transplant is done, there has to be a death. The donor gives life to another at the expense of his own, usually under tragic circumstances. And so it is with a spiritual heart transplant. And when a person receives a new heart, part of the person that donated it lives on inside of them. You picking up what I'm throwing down? So we have Jesus Christ who donates this new heart to us who died under tragic circumstances to give us the new life that we needed. He died so that we could live. And he lives on inside of us, right? As this new heart beats for him As we live a life of discipleship, we live for the one who died for us. And we have hope because not only did he die, he rose again, right? And so we live. And we become his hands and feet in this world around us. As exiles. As citizens of a different kingdom. We do our best to be Jesus so that when Jesus comes back, he finds us being Jesus, right? As we close, I want to back up in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 30 and 31. Notice what it says. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God, repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit for why will you die, O house of Israel? Do you have a heart of stone? Do you need a new heart? Do you want a second opinion? Let me tell you, you don't need it. Do you need a new heart? Well, there's a diagnosis. There's a doctor in the house. And there is a donor ready to give new life. A donor heart is available. The doctor is waiting. Why would you leave an offer like that on the table? Notice that last line again in Ezekiel chapter 18. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Just insert your name in there. Oh, why will you die, Tim Smith? Why would you do that? Why will you die, Alan Porter? Why would you do that? Why would you die? When giving life is so readily available, when a donor heart is there and ready, why would you leave that on the table? That is the height of silliness, isn't it? So, I don't know where you're at this morning. I know you're here, and I'm grateful. Let us help you. Are you ready for a heart transplant? Are you ready for new life? Are you ready to move from degenerate to regenerate? If so, let us help you. David's going to lead us in a song. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.